Well, good evening and welcome to Deep in Scripture. This is your host, Marcus Grodi, coming to you over EWTN Radio and from the studio at the Coming Home Network International near Zanesville, Ohio. Thank you for joining us this evening. On this program, we are committed to getting deeper in Scripture uh, by listening to our teacher, the church. And I've invited uh, a, a guest to join us, as I normally do on this program, to, who's chosen a, a gift that, a, a, a Scripture that inspired them deeper to follow Jesus Christ. And our guest this evening is Father Doug Grandin. He is a convert to the Catholic Church. He has a long history. If you go to the website deepinscripture.com, you'll see uh, his picture as well as his bio. Uh, Father Grandin was um, long before he was Catholic. He uh, was brought up in a family, actually, that had very little religious interest. Later, uh, through his, an early conversion, became uh, very active in the pres- Pentecostal church. After a number of years in the Pentecostal church, uh, he was invited overseas to do some missionary work in um Oh, I don't have the, oh, Father Doug, you're hearing me. You can correct me when you come back on, on the line a little bit. But I think you were in Slovakia, I think. Um, and uh, he served a number of years uh, in mission work, in translation work, and then eventually came back to the United States after seminary, uh, was ordained at Evangelical Free, served as a pastor. He was on the journey towards the Catholic Church by his reading of early church fathers and history and study of scripture, particularly studying of Cardinal Newman. Um, But his first step towards the Catholic Church was the Episcopal Church, where he served as an Episcopal priest. But the trajectory was strong, as is often the case. He became Catholic, and then with his call to the uh, ministry, his bishop recognized his call to the priesthood. And now he serves as a priest in the Peoria Diocese. Uh, he is um, Associate Director of the Cath- Office of Catechetics for the Diocese of Peoria. He's also a member of the Philosophy and Religious Studies faculty at Bradley University and a parish speaker and board member for the Mary Mother of God Mission Societies, whose mission is to restore the Catholic Church in the Russian Far East. So Father Grandin will join us in a moment after the break. I want to remind you that uh, we'd love to have your phone calls or emails, any questions about the program. We'd love to hear you during the program. If you'd like to contact us, you can do so, 800-664-5110, or the regular Coming Home Network number is 740-450-1175, or you can send me an email. I'll be uh, watching the the email inbox during the program, marcus at deepinscripture.com. Father Grandin has uh, chosen Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 24 as the text that we'd like to look at tonight. Now, that's a long section. We're going to particularly focus on verses 11 through 14. I'll read those in a moment, but those of you who've listened to Deep in Scripture over the years know that for about a year and a half, we focused on the book of Ephesians and studied it from beginning to end. If you go to the Deep in Scripture Dot com website, you can find the um, archives of all those radio broadcasts as well as the notes. Uh, in those days when I did the program, actually I produced study notes for the book of Ephesians. And if you're interested in studying Ephesians, all those notes are available for your download and for your use either individually or as a small group study. And my take on Ephesians 
is that this wonderful letter of St. Paul was written when he was in chains and written, this is what I believe from the data of the book, written to Ephesus to be read from the pulpit on very likely Easter when the the new Gentile believers were received into the church and baptized. It says they were anointed and then they became members of the church, members of the body of Christ, sons and daughters in the family. They were no longer Jew or Gentile, but they were one. And chapters 1 through 3 of Ephesians essentially explains what happens when we are baptized, the changes that take place. But then chapters 4 through 6 are basically recognizing that when we come forth from the waters of baptism, though our original sin has been wiped away and we're now members of the body of Christ, that doesn't necessarily mean that we are now, that all our bad habits have been washed away, our bad attitudes or our inclination towards a sinful lifestyle. We have to change. And chapter 4, 5, and 6 explain the new life that we are now called to live. As he says in verse 1, chapter 4, he begs us to lead a life worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Through baptism, we were called. Now let's live a life according to that. And chapters 4, 5, and 6 are about that. Chapter 4 is kind of the introduction to this section. It talks about the unity that we share because of our one baptism. But then in verses 11 through 14, St. Paul addresses the organization, the, the way the church is structured, but particularly the way that God has equipped the church, equipped certain individuals in the church with particular gifts to equip others so that they can equip others. He, he describes this process in his second letter to Timothy, chapter 2, verse 2, when Paul if you remember, who was knocked off his horse on the road and was converted by Jesus himself, given the mission to the Gentiles. And in the process, he is equipping Timothy as his uh, assistant, uh, bishop. And so Paul writes to Timothy and says in verse 2 of chapter 2 of 2 Timothy, what you have heard from me before many witnesses and trust a faithful man who will be able to teach others also. So you see, Paul to Timothy, to others, to others, to others. This is how the church accomplishes its mission. Christ appointed apostles who appointed others, who appointed others. That's the apostolic succession. And in this particular session section, we don't see so much the apostolic succession of bishop to bishop to bishop to bishop, but each ordained, called leader in the church is given unique gifts to equip the rest of the body for the work of the mission. And I'm going to read this passage, and then when we come back from the break, Father Grandin will join us, and we'll talk about how this applies to our life in Christ today. Again, this is Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 through 14. And as gifts were that some should be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors, and teachers, to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature 
of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro and carried about, by, carried about with every wind of doctrine, by the cunning of men, by their craftiness in deceitful wiles. You're listening to Deep in Scripture. This is your host, Marcus Grodi, and you're hearing us on EWTN, your global Catholic radio network. Next time on The Journey Home, join Marcus when he welcomes former evangelical Protestant Keith Moore to the show. Find out what convinced him to leave his faith tradition and make the journey home to the Catholic Church. That's on the next Journey Home, only on EWTN. The Journey Home is seen and heard around the world on EWTN. For dates and times in your area, log on to EWTN.com. Coming Home Network International and Marcus Grodi invite you to join us for our 7th Annual Deep in History Conference coming this fall to Columbus, Ohio. This year we will begin on the rock looking to understand the question of authority, the pillar and bulwark of truth. Join us the weekend of October 23rd as we bring together another exciting list of speakers. For more information, go to deepinhistory.com or call us at 800-664-5110. Welcome back to Deep in Scripture. This is your host, Marcus Grodi, and I'm joined this evening by Father Doug Grandin. Are you there, Father Doug? I'm here, Marcus. Well, welcome from Peoria. I assume that's where you're you're talking to us from. Actually, I'm in Moline, where my parish is located. Oh, all right. All right. Well, welcome to the program. Um, there's so much to talk about in this passage. I don't want to waste too much time gabbing, although uh, I'd love to just sit and talk with you for a while. But, uh, Father... Um, you know, this, uh, I will say, you've chosen this passage, which I find it interesting when I think about the journey yourself that you've been on. Uh, you know, Pentecostal and then later ordained at Evangelical Free Path. Of course, you served as a missionary translator first. I, was I right? Were you in Slovakia? It was uh, former Yugoslavia. That's right. That's right. And uh, I mean, there you were as a missionary, a translator, and then you served as a pastor, and you've been an educator. And in a sense, you've had a lot of those gifts that's talked about in, in verse 11 in this passage. Of course, now you're serving a, as a priest, uh, which I'm guessing was not something you anticipated when you were a young man. Marcus, you know, I was, um, I was trolling the web today, and I, <laughs> and I went to uh, uh, a site, a, a church history site, a Catholic church history site, and it showed a, uh, uh, the front of an anti-Catholic tract. And I noticed uh, it was just an ugly anti-Catholic tract, and it was from um, uh, it was from a, uh, a a small town just down the road from us. It was amazing uh, to to know that this was a factory of anti-Catholic tracts down there. <laughs> but the fact is that um, in my early years, and I was a convert uh, in my teen years, um, I was taught a, a pretty rabid kind of anti-Catholicism, and. To imagine that I would even entertain the possibility of being a Catholic, <laughs> let alone a Catholic priest, was ab- it would have been an impossibility at that point. But the Holy Spirit does give grace, and he leads us on our journey, and here I am, thanks be to God. And I want to make sure that, that, that especially any new listeners to this program don't misunderstand us. Both Father Doug and I have come from Protestant backgrounds, and I was a Presbyterian pastor. And I'm sure you feel the same way, uh, Father Doug, that uh, I'm eternally grateful to 
to the men and women that brought mm-hmm. me to Jesus Christ long before I ever thought about the Catholic Church. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, as we uh, settle in in a few moments to talk about uh, these passages in Ephesians chapter 4, um, really the, the, uh, the significant insights that I'm going to talk about um, I gained way back when in that Pentecostal church <laughs> when my pastor taught us that um, God didn't just want to save us from our sins, but he wanted to train us and engage us and send us out for mission. That's what propelled me as a young man to go to communist Yugoslavia to assist the churches there. And I've never given up on that vision. It's just been clarified over the years for me. I am really grateful for what I gained uh, every step of my journey. And our, when I think about those that are so convinced in anti-Catholic ideology and actually mythology, uh, in other words, their ideas are not based on fact or maybe a, a small kernel of fact that's been blown out of proportion, I recognize that a lot of the problem is ignorance. They just have not had the opportunity to, to examine the data. And so our prayers for them is that they would. Absolutely. There is so much that I misunderstood about what Catholics believe, and I, was, I really was ill-informed. I was, I was sincere. I believe that, that I was acting upon what I thought was true all those years, but, but I'm grateful that as I studied especially church history, and you mention that all the time on your Journey Home program, right. how dangerous that is, an honest study of church history, um, I, I just couldn't. I just couldn't reject the evidence any longer. And I met too many zealous, faithful Catholics to deny that the Holy Spirit was very active in the Church. Um, and I'm thankful for all of them because you, you know, those of us who are converts, we would admit that there are many things about the Catholic Church that should be much better. We wish that she were more faithful and zealous and and all of that, but. Um, I couldn't deny that the Holy Spirit was at work in a dramatic way. And then when I saw that the Catholic Church was around for about 1,500 years before any of the churches that I had been in <laughs> were ever thought of, um, the argument to come into the Catholic Church was pretty compelling for me. Now, why this passage? Well, it, it, um, it intrigues me um, because I think that in order to be the kind of church that God wants us to be, the kind of parish God wants us to be, the kind of Christian that God wants us to be, we have to think about God's purpose for us. I I remember when I was an undergraduate student at Bradley University, where I teach part-time now, um, I had to take a management class. And the professor talked to us about uh, something Uh, called management by objective. And he emphasized that that when you're managing people and you're managing limited resources, you want to make sure that you're marshalling all of these various resources in order to to accomplish a specific objective. And I I think that all too often uh, in the church, we carry on with a kind of maintenance mentality without focusing our limited resources on what uh, will bring God the greatest glory and fulfill what Jesus himself called us to do. And I think that these verses right here present a game plan for how we should uh, conduct our ministry in a very strategic way. Your um, 
I wonder if you're stepping on toes. And, and when I agree with you completely, but you and I both come at this from former evangelical backgrounds with strong emphasis on evangelization and also a strong emphasis on equipping the laity. Mm-hmm. The church teaches that very thing. Absolutely. But there are a lot of people, out, uh, a lot of Catholics out there that maybe aren't accustomed to hearing it in those terms. Well, uh, I think that that may very well be true, and we would certainly want to say this is not an evangelical Protestant insight. This is, like all good things, this is a truly Catholic insight. Um, The gospel never would have arrived um, to us uh, so far away from from, uh, first century Israel if uh, people in every generation had not understood that they were to be engaged in evangelizing and catechizing and training others for that mission. And somehow, in the midst of all of the problems the Church has had in, in every moment of its history from the very beginning, somehow in the midst of all of that, uh, the Church has carried on its mission, and here we are today, you and I, able to talk about uh, the mission of the Church and how we can better fulfill it. And I think that um, rare would be the bishop, rare would be the priest, rare would be the layperson who truly knows Jesus Christ, who would not want to consider how to do the work of the church in a, in a, in a very efficient and uh, God-glorifying way. And that's really what we're talking about. It's not, it's not uh, Protestant or, or evangelical. It's, uh, it's really a Catholic understanding of what we're all about. And, and what you've just said uh, reiterates something I just read this afternoon in a wonderful book by G.K. Chesterton called The The Catholic Church and Conversion, which I strongly recommend to any of our listeners. In fact, I think we're going to feature it in our newsletter this coming month. But in that, he talked about in his own conversion, one of the things he discovered was that, that our Protestant brothers and sisters, though they don't realize it, are really a part of the much huger Catholic Church. And the doctrines that they so dearly presume they, they received originally from the Catholic Church. And like Calvinist, this, the idea of the sovereignty of God was a Catholic dogma. It just pushed a bit too far in Calvinism, or quietism has pushed a bit too far in Quakerism, though the idea of simplicity and such is a Catholic ideal. And this idea of evangelization, therefore, is very, very Catholic. It's just sometimes the maintenance mode can so easily take over when the, the needs are so great yeah. at the, on the local level. And, uh, Marcus, I, I readily admit I'm, a, I'm a, uh, a lowly priest, and, uh, you know, I have, I have uh, very little authority in the whole scheme of things. But um, it, it, it does seem to me that uh, we need to, to look at all of this and um, and make certain that we're, we're doing God's work in God's way. In, in, my, in my parish, you know, we're facing some challenges in the, in the present economic climate, and I've been repeating lately that God's work done in God's way will never lack God's support. And often, you know, um, I think God doesn't shower us with his blessing, and here I'm talking about financial blessings, but others as well, um, because he sees that we're too distracted and, and, and not focused, and he wants to get our attention. 
one thing I think he wants us to look at is is our our budgets, our parish budgets, our diocesan budgets. Um, it's a fair question to ask. How much money are we actually putting toward evangelization? How much money are we putting toward catechesis that really works? Yeah. Um, in in our um, context. We put vast amounts of money toward our school, and I'm, I'm all in favor of Catholic education. But we also need to measure the outcome of our investment and make sure that we're producing saints and missionaries and priests and, and people who will raise solid Catholic families and people who will attend Mass. These are all legitimate questions, I think, and uh, I think that, that um, this passage helps us to clarify some of that, at least as far as our mission and how we accomplish it. And actually, I'd like to make a, a statement, and, and if someone listening would like to challenge my comment on this uh, idea, I'd love to hear from you either by phone call or email, uh, and you can go to the website if, if you didn't catch those earlier. But I believe one of the problems we have today is that in the 200 years that the church in America, essentially 200 years, that Catholics have been able to live essentially freely as Americans. In other words, ever since the American Revolution allowed for freedom of religion in our culture, that the primary growth in the Catholic Church in America has been mostly by immigration. Second of all, to to birth and baptism, maybe thirdly to marriage, and then only fourthly to actual conversions of non-Catholics. I would say it's a very small percentage. And when we had that huge growth of immigrants in the late, mid to late 1800s, in which the percentage of the Catholic Church in America just shot up there, we've remained about the same percentage ever since, plus or minus about 4 or 5%. But what happened was in those days is when the educational and the bricks and, and mortar structures were established to meet this this, this burgeoning rise of Catholics in America because of immigration. But, of course, that stopped. And so we were continuing traditions like the educational institutions, but we don't always have the financial structure or the population in the church to continue those particular institutions. Mm-hmm. And, Marcus, um uh, we may have some listeners from the Diocese of Wichita. Um, I'm particularly uh, enthralled by their stewardship uh, uh, ministry there, where um, they teach people how to be disciples of Jesus Christ in a very profound way. And it begins with fundamental commitments like regular Mass attendance, mm-hmm. serving in your parish, being involved in parish ministries, and then committing to um, uh, giving uh, a tithe to the church so the church can use that money wisely to carry on the work of ministry. And they're, they're, they're making disciples in such a profound way where um, they're able to offer Catholic education, in fact, all of their parish ministries, free of charge, and, um, and they are concerned that those ministries all be Catholic to the core so they're producing the kind of fruit that would remain eternally for Christ. I think this is a model that could be uh, replicated all around the country. And this is what I'm talking about, a kind of ministry by objective. You know, recently I've been thinking about how we preach. 
and um, I love to preach. I love to teach. These are particular things that that I'm gifted to do, and I love doing them uh, by the grace of God. But you know, the time that we have to preach at a, at a mass is limited. I wish it were longer. I was talking to Africans um, who are missionaries in uh, West Africa, in Muslim areas, and elsewhere. And when they gather, um, they preach for for 30 minutes or more, and there's not a hurry to leave. I wish we could do that. But if, if you say we just have, say, 10 minutes at a weekend mass, to, to think about what, what, do, what does the Word of God say to us? The, the, word, the, the, the passages we have for this, this week, what do they say to us? And then how can I help God's people to understand their responsibility as we have talked about this passage? How do we apply it? What objective do I want to accomplish in my listeners? And we can, you know, 10 minutes isn't a long time to do catechesis, but we can do some shaping and molding and um, forming of people during that time. And hopefully we can create a hunger where they'll go to Bible studies and they'll want to deepen their faith outside the Mass. But I I think it's not helpful just to imagine that we have time to fill without having an objective that we're trying to accomplish each and every Sunday when we preach. Well, this this passage, which has led us to this discussion, I mean, th- those of you listening wonder, when you can get to the Bible study? Well, <laughs> right. that's what we're doing. No, no, no. I mean, we're talking about the implications of this passage for the body of Christ today. And we're, we'll take a break in a moment, but before I go there, I'm going to back up one passage, or a couple passages, to verse 7, mm-hmm. because verse 7 sets the... Absolutely. The, the whole understanding of this passage as well as our place, each one of us, and what we are to do about this. We can't point fingers to anyone else. It's their fault if they do this or they quit doing this or blah, 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 because verse 7 says that, but grace was given to each of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Now, how does that apply to this discussion, Father Doug? Well, um, God's grace is an effectual grace. It's intended to bring about um, some kind of transformation, some kind of benefit. Um, we know that, that it was the grace of God that brought us to salvation, but grace also comes to us in the form of empowerment to overcome sin, in the form of uh, spiritual gifts which enable us to bring benefit to the body of Christ. And so he lays this this uh, uh, a primary um, idea down that uh, all that we are, all that we will be, all that we do, any success that we have, it all begins with the grace of God. That's the most fundamental idea that all of us have to come to, that whatever we are, whatever we do, whatever success we have, it's all, it all originates in God and his grace coming to us. And he talks then about, he quotes a, a psalm and applies this to Christ, about how Christ or this grace comes to us through the victory that Christ won for us on the cross. And then in verse 11, which you may want to talk about after the break, um, he begins very specifically to talk about how God's grace shapes us through gifted people who themselves are recipients of this special grace. In baptism, which is what verses one through chapters one through three are basically about, we receive that gift of grace mm-hmm. that made us new creations. It says in Second Corinthians chapter 
uh, 5. Uh, the old is gone, the new has come. We are in Christ as a result of baptism. Now we have this gift. All right. How are we as sons and daughters to use this for the glory of our Father? And that's what verse 11 and on mm-hmm. we'll talk about. Let's take a break. We'll come back and we'll jump right into that discussion. You're listening to Deep in Scripture. This is your host, Marcus Grodi. I'm joined tonight by Father Doug Grandin, and you're hearing us on EWTN, your global Catholic radio network. Next time on Mother Angelica Live Classics. Through Adam's disobedience, many were made sinners, but through Christ's obedience, many will be made righteous. Join Mother as she takes a look at the consequences of sin. That's on the next Mother Angelica Live Classics, only on EWTN. Mother Angelica Live Classics is seen and heard around the world on EWTN. For dates and times in your area, log on to EWTN.com. Follow the compelling journey of one man who became a Church of Christ minister and found himself entering the Catholic Church. Bruce Sullivan shares his conversion story in his new book titled Christ in His Fullness. In this book, he communicates a passionate love for Christ and the inexhaustible treasures of grace found in the Catholic Church. Perhaps you, too, will discover the same riches in the fullness of Christ. To order a copy of this book for yourself or a friend, please visit our website, www.chnetwork.org or call us at 1-800-664-5110. Welcome back to Deep in Scripture. This is Marcus Grodi, your host for this program. I'm joined this evening by Father Doug Grandin. All right, Father, we're going to look right at chapter 4, verse 11, as he talks about Again, the distribution and the application of these gifts that we've received from Christ. And Marcus, can I just return for a moment? Yes. Um, you were talking before you we went on to the break about uh, the grace that comes to us through baptism. Yes. I've been thinking about um, uh, a paragraph 1294 in the Catechism in recent days. This is uh, a, confirma- a confirmation um, about the sacrament of confirmation. Yes. And it says, um, by confirmation... Christians, that is, those who are anointed, share more completely in the mission of Jesus Christ and the fullness of the Holy Spirit with which he is filled, so that their 